This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. <laughs> They're dogs and they're playing poker! <laughs> Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamin Show. Today's show is a complete circus. We've got headlines flying all over, a Haven Lifeline spotlight, my amazing trivia shot out of a cannon. But mostly on today's show, we welcome the guy who wrote a new biography called Barnum, Robert Wilson. Plus, how much has summer cost you and your family? Here with some slightly disturbing numbers, we welcome Desiree Vargas Wrigley from Parachute. And now, two guys who are in the center ring of this circus, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. That's right, Doug. I am the ringmaster, Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And across this table from me, to kick off another week, is the clown in this circus. It's my good friend, OG. Wrong. Oh, come Wrong. on. Wrong. Yes. I am... The uh, I am the Zac Efron. Oh, so you think so, huh? I am the good-looking one that holds everything together when you go crazy. I th- th- you're the money. You're the money on the show. Also that. Yeah. Also the sure. cash. All those things might be true, but I think the clown thing's not far off either. But so also, you, you're not wrong. It I could be. Yeah, it doesn't have to be either or, dude. It can be both. Speaking of both, you can both listen to the show and subscribe to the Stacker Our Newsletter. How about that for a transition? Was that good? There you go. Yes. Uh, Nearly every week, you'll receive a missive from us delivered secretly to an email address that you pick. And you'll be delighted when you open it up to see 
that you will get money lessons. And about every fifth one, you'll get an, an issue called Strategy and Tactics, where we show you exactly some tools that you can use, episodes of the show from the past that you can use, books, apps, all kinds of stuff to make those things happen easier that we talked about the four weeks prior. How do you get your hands on it, you ask? Oh, it's very easy. Stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacker. That's it, OG. That's it. Pretty simple. I am so excited. Bob Wilson's here. He is the biographer of the new book, Barnum, about the life of P.T. Barnum. And if there's anybody who who this show might resemble, I'd say it's P.T. Barnum. (laughs) <laughs> the circus that this is yeah. very very well might be excited to get him here we've got a couple headlines featuring another great guest in our second headline so let's get rolling hello darlings and now it's time for your favorite part of the show our stacking benjamin's headlines in our first headline which comes to us from market watch by way of yahoo finance this is written by alicia manel this is something og that i think is kind of basic. But then I remember when I was a financial planner, this is the thing people don't think about a lot. So I thought, man, what a great time to bring this up. The money in your 401k and IRA accounts doesn't belong entirely to you, which is true if you're in a pre-tax account. Let's talk about why it doesn't belong to you. Alicia writes, I keep worrying that people approaching retirement with 401k and IRA balances don't realize that they owe taxes on their accumulations. I'm sympathetic. It's hard to accept that the pile we've contributed to and nursed over our working life is not all ours. Of course, we've all benefited throughout the years by not having to pay taxes on those contributions paid into our pre-tax traditional 401k plans and IRA accounts and on the investment returns on those contributions. Deferring taxes for decades is real value. She goes on to talk about how that is a great thing and we come out ahead. However, OG, she then says, for some, the tax bill is going to be quite high when you take the money out. She has uh, some tables below. And as an example, if you've saved a million dollars into your 401k or IRA and your income at the time is over $287,000, so you're one of those high income people, tax rate, as you pull that money out, it's 32%. Well, even if it's not, I mean, that's a, yeah. If you're, if you got a million bucks and you make 300,000 a year, we're saying, um, we're saying hello to that one guy listening to the show who does that. Yeah. Yeah. But more, I think where she's going with this is you have to account for the fact that, you know, maybe 20 or maybe 25%, probably not 30 for most people, but for some, and certainly some high cost areas, you know, uh, Chicago or um, San Francisco or someplace is going to have a little bit higher individual city taxes. That's going to have an impact. Although every every state and every city has different rules on how they treat retirement benefits, but nevertheless, I think people get locked up in this four percent thing. We use these rules of thumb. Go, oh, I got a million dollars, I can take forty grand out. Yes, but you only get to keep thirty of it. It's like, yeah. but I need forty. Well, now you got to take out fifty to get forty, but fifty is more than forty, right? So you need a twenty five percent more. You need a million and a quarter to be able to pull out. You know what I mean? So we got to recognize that it's the after-tax money. That's the only thing that really matters. It's just just how much money you get to have. And I've seen it. I know you did too, where people are like, yeah, so I'm going to take that two grand. You're like, well, no, to get two, you need to take out 2,800. We can't take 2,800. That's too much. Yeah. 
Yeah, it 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 truly uh, is a lack of planning on the back end. I I love this idea, this book that I keep going back to. The Seven Habits Highly Effective People. When you pick up one end of the stick, you also pick up the other end. And we mm-hmm. all spend a lot of time talking about how we're going to accumulate this money. But the decumulation, I just crossed that box off my bingo card uh, phase, where you're taking money out, the distribution part, I, I think OG is equally as important. You got to spend time thinking about, I've got these accounts, I've got my Roth, I got my pre-tax money. What mix of these am I going to take out? I think you can seriously win the battle that a lot of people lose by paying a little bit better attention to how you take money out, how that's distributed. I like the other side of this too, where you know we get these conversations about should we have pre-tax money, post-tax money? Should I do a conversion? Should I not do a conversion? You know, sometimes financial planning is about kind of tricking yourself, right? I mean, like we talk about automating things. Like if I can take it out of my paycheck before I get it, then I'm more likely to save, right? If I can take money out of my out of my uh, savings account automatically, I'm more likely to do it. If I have to physically write the check, I'm more unlikely to do it. You know what I mean? So the same thing is true when it comes to retirement planning. Maybe it's best to pay the piper a little early, knowing that you're going to have to work that extra year because you didn't save enough money, you know, (laughs) but rather than fooling yourself, no, I'm serious. Rather than fooling yourself and go, well, I got a million bucks. I can go like in the back of your mind going, well, it's really 700,000. You really like, wouldn't it be better just to just call it like it is and go, yeah, I really got 700,000 and I'm going to have to work two more years and put money in my, you know, Roth side of my 401k and, and, you know, not get that tax deduction today. So I, I don't know. I think there's something to be said about making your life easy and simple. So when we talk about, should we do conversions? Is it better to have this? Is it better to have that? Sometimes we're nitpicking those, you know, those dollars on the bottom end, but forgetting about the, the, the big sweeping issue that is, Make it so your life isn't complicated. Make it so you can actually be financially successful. Yeah, people people wonder then how you can do that. The Roth IRA is exactly what you're talking about there, OG. The most, the least clean thing, when you talk about keeping it clean, the least clean piece of the Roth IRA is the name. The name is horrible. But, but, it's, but it's such a clean plan. You put money in. It grows, uh, it grows tax deferred. And as long as you jump through a couple easy hoops, none of them difficult, uh, you get to take the money out tax-free. Forever and ever. Yeah. Very clean. You got a million dollars. Guess what? You can take a million dollars. As long as you jump through a couple easy hoops, not hard at all. But, but, and I love this reminder. Uh, thanks for that piece, Alicia. Well, in our second headline, what's the cost of summer? One company, Parachute, did a survey of over 600 parents of young children to talk about what you may have spent this summer. And here on the line with me on My Dad Shortwave to talk about it is the founder and CEO of Parachute, Desiree Vargas Wrigley. How are you? I am great. Thanks so much for having me. This is depressing news, Desiree. I was hoping that summer was free. Yeah, right. When I think back to childhood, I think of just running around, being on my bike. I don't even imagine what my mom spent. Right. raising us. But but now we kind of, we know, you know, there haven't been a lot of studies about how parents are spending their money and time every summer. And it's kind of this unseen, unspoken burden and, and cost for us. And so we wanted to 
show the world how much people really are spending. Yeah. And let's talk about the, why you did this study. You guys at Parachute, you're very interested in this sort of thing. Tell me why you decided to commission this study. A little background on Parachute. Parachute is a website and an app that makes it really easy for families to discover and book the best family-friendly activities happening in every city across the U.S. So we have free activities, paid activities, camps, ongoing sessions, basically your kind of one-stop shop for family enrichment. So we started thinking about, okay, well, you know, creating all these moments for families, it's still going to add up. I wonder how much yeah. people are actually spending. And then what does it look like when you add day camp on top of it and childcare on top of it and then your family vacation? And also to help hopefully, you know, employers who are looking at people, you know, when they're taking time off and, and why they're taking time off and what can they do maybe to help maybe offset some of this financial burden that families face every year. I hadn't thought of that aspect of it, but it was funny. I was just on your site and there's a lot of stuff. I'm in the Detroit area. And when I just put Detroit in, there's so many things right in my backyard and people think they have to spend an arm and a leg for vacation. Right. I mean, we're big fans of vacations as a family, but also as a company, because you know you sometimes forget to be a tourist in your own city. And whether you're in a big city or a small city, there's always great attractions and you get to kind of rediscover your city through your children's eyes. So we definitely want to help people do that. I found it also made it more fun, Desiree, when people come to town, like now that I started doing that, now people come to town and I feel like a better tour guide. Like I, I can, I can totally work for the chamber of commerce in my city or the tourism industry in my city, but let's get into the, let's get into the survey. How much money does the average family spend on summer fun in 2019? $10,759. And that's not, yeah, that's not just, I mean, that's not the regular cost that you have fall, winter, spring. That's just the fun stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of childcare in there too, but this is just combination of eating out, going to the movies, going to museums, going to water parks, maybe taking a staycation or a small vacation. Yeah. just That's all the costs added up. Let's dive into some of these. What were the average costs of vacations and staycations? So the average family is spending a little over $2,200 for airfare, accommodations, gas, and dining out while they're on vacation, which for a family of four isn't isn't too bad. We've actually thought that number was a little bit lower than we expected. We had some people coming in with really big spends. They must be traveling internationally a lot. Some people were around $18,000 in, in vacation spending over the summer, but the vast majority of people were in this kind of $1,500 to $3,000 range. But as you said, a way to lower that number, look for deals in and around your hometown. Completely. Yep. Group on things to do is a great resource. We integrate with them. And so you can come on parachute and find all the kid-friendly group ons that are out there. What was next? Because you also have entertainment costs among all the different entertainment costs out there. What ended up costing people the most this summer? Movies. People really committed to spending a lot of money on movies this year. Um, it's not surprising. I think the box office has been doing really well, but we, we kind of lumped eating out into the entertainment category. So that was, that was definitely high on the list also that Families expected to spend about $100 per week dining out, which isn't super, super shocking. The biggest cost, though, really was around childcare, and we separated that out from any kind of summer camp. So as you can imagine, kids are home from school, you're paying for nannies, you're filling in with babysitters, you're staying home from work, paying a grandparent, something like that. The average cost there was just under $3,500 for the summer. That is, I mean, 3,500 divided by the number of days really isn't a lot of money, but that still can hit a family's budget hard. Yeah. If you're not prepared for it, you know, a lot of families we know are putting summer on their credit cards and paying for it later, but you do that. And then you're right next to the holidays and doing the same thing all over again. So you can see why so many millennial families are in a lot of debt. 
If we look at those things, the entertainment places, uh, eating out, the movies like you talked about, some of the special outings, people go to a site like yours. What's the average deal look like, Desiree, or is there such a thing as the average deal? How much money can we save? Yeah, so no matter what, you're saving at a minimum about 10% on anything you buy on Parachute. But we operate in credits, and so you can purchase credits to then buy experiences later. And so the more credits you buy, the more you save. And sometimes you can save as much as 60 or 70% on an activity. Yeah. And that can make a big difference. And at this point in the summer, we chalk that down to maybe we made a mistake this summer, but we won't make the same one next summer. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, if people can find a way to use some of the offerings through their park districts and community centers, those are significantly cheaper than, you know, a lot of the trendier, more expensive specialized camps. And then also think about how you can make staycations more affordable, take advantage of some of the kids eat free restaurants that are, you know, definitely trying to bring more people in that kind of Tuesday through Thursday timeframe. And then try to get to those Tuesday and those dollar movies, because it's definitely almost every theater in the country is offering some kind of discount on a day. Yeah. I love the Tuesday idea. We started doing that a couple of years ago with movies and now we see a lot more movies in the theater than we used to once we discovered that gem. Uh, and kids eat yeah. free can save a family a ton of money. Yeah, absolutely. I think next year our study will focus on um, how we can save, help people save the most in each category. But it was a great baseline to understand what kind of where families are. And we'll do it again next year to see if it's trending up because I think it's something that we should all pay attention to. Okay, last question I have for you, the really tough one, Desiree. Your company is called Parachute, but it's pear like the fruit a shoot. How did you come up with that name? Well, the idea of kind of parachuting in or dropping into the sun just seemed so visual and we liked that. But uh, there, are, if you search the word parachute, there's a sheet company, there's a restaurant, <laughs> there's a thousand Amazon uh, results. And so we thought, you know, the classroom has an apple as its icon, maybe extracurriculars and entertainment needs to have its own cute little fruit. So we, we turned the pear into a P-E-A-R and yeah, we're in love with our little logo and hopefully families across the country will too. We'll link to parachute and uh, to the study on our show notes page at stackybenjamins.com. Desiree, thanks for hanging out with us for a few minutes and talking about hopefully helping families save some money. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to Desiree for taking some time to talk to us. Ten th- over 10,000 bucks, OG, in the summer on uh, keeping your kids entertained, childcare. That's something that I often see people forget in the budget, right? They do their monthly budget and summer comes around it's got to be like Kaboom. this. Yeah, it's got to be like this for you and families you work with. Because when I was a planner, it seemed like if the budget ever got wrecked, June, July, August. Yeah. I think that um, especially for families that are that are out of the daycare component. I mean, daycare is all the time, right? So there's no delineation between summer and winter and, you know, because everybody works all the time. But um, But when you get past that, when you've got a kid that's a first grader and a kid that's a third grader and you go, oh... I got to do something with them. Like I can't, I still have to work. Yeah. They have to go somewhere. So we've got to do a summer program of some kind. It can get pricey in a hurry. That's why these budgets like YNAB or every dollar, these budgets where every dollar has a mission, right? The zero sum budget where at the start of the month, you say this dollar goes here, this dollar goes here, this dollar goes here. Those budgets don't get fooled, but the average back of the envelope budget that you use every single month, those are the ones that get fooled. Yeah. 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 And I think that that is a uh, maybe our first takeaway. Our second takeaway is got all that money in a pre-tax 401k plan and using the 4% rule. Like they say in the movie Jaws, OG, you might need a bigger boat.
Robert Wilson likes to be called Bob. He is the author of Matthew Brady, Portraits of a Nation, and The Explorer King, a biography of Clarence King. He's the editor of The American Scholar, former editor of Preservation, the founding literary editor of Civilization, all three, by the way, OG, won the National Magazine Awards during his tenure. That's not slouching. Yeah, no kidding. Former book editor and columnist for USA Today, former editor at the Washington Post Book World. His essays, reviews, and fiction have appeared all over the place, like the American Scholar, American Short Fiction, the Atlantic Monthly, New Republic, Smithsonian, Washington Post Magazine. Do I need to keep going on? He's all over the place. But today we have him here because he's talking about P.T. Barnum. Lots of life, work, and business lessons we can learn from P.T. Barnum and from Bob Wilson. Bob, coming down to the basement. And coming down the stairs to the basement, it's the author of the new book about P.T. Barnum. But Bob Wilson is here. How are you, man? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Great to be in your basement. Well, I'm so happy that you could be with us. You know, this is, we call this the greatest money show on earth, but that's obviously a direct reflection of this gentleman, P.T. Barnum, who you talk about. And before I actually get to him, I want to ask you something about the movie last year, The Greatest Showman, right? Lots of good music, lots of cool stories, Hugh Jackman, Larger Than Life, how much of that is truth and how much of that was just fun Hollywood? I would say about 90% of it is Hollywood, uh, including the the whole sort of sensibility of, you know, his relationship to his, the people he exhibited and all that sort of thing. It's a very uh, 21st century take, but it, it also did a lot of surprising things that were sort of less interesting than Barnum's own story. I mean, Barnum's own story is just so good. You didn't really need to alter it, but, uh, you know, sort of turning him into the poor boy and his, his wife into the rich woman. And those things were all just utterly wrong. Well, and he's, he's mostly known for, you know, people think of PT Barnum. The first thing they think of, I think for most people, Bob is there's a sucker born every minute. Yeah. When did he say that? Uh, he never said it. I mean, it's very hard to prove that something didn't happen. But given the fact that he wrote hundreds of thousands of words, either in newspapers, uh, in advertisements, in his autobiography, which he rewrote many, many times, and never said it in any of those things. And nobody ever that he knew ever quoted him as saying it. And he was in newspapers. He was constantly the subject of newspaper articles and gossip. And the real thing that proves this is that it just completely misrepresents his relationship to his customers. One of his his great life's work really was running a huge museum in lower Manhattan that was the most uh, visited tourist attraction in New York for a couple of decades. So he needed to keep the people coming in for that. And then as a showman, as he would take acts out on the road, he had audiences he needed to deal with. And his relationships with all of these people was one of, of real respect and also of a sort of humorous nudging. It's like, okay, I'm doing something that's a little bit hard for you to believe, or maybe a lot hard for you to believe, but you're in on the joke. I want you to kind of decide for yourself whether this is true or not true. 
but he was definitely not trying to pull the wool over his audience's eyes. And um, he had this elaborate theory of what he called humbug. And a humbug to him, I mean, to us, the dictionary definition now is simply deception, you know, straight out deception. To him, it was, you know, stretching the truth in order to create interest and to get people into his museum or into his show. But his feeling was the second part of humbug was you had this real obligation to give people much more than they had paid for. Yeah, and like they had a, to go a feeling not that they've been humbugged, but that they've been completely satisfied. Well, like in the current day, you would look at, um, and he was he had a newspaper for a while, and we could talk about that a little bit. But in the current day, we'd look at clickbait. It seems like P.T. Barnum didn't like clickbait, where you click on the story and it ends up being garbage. He really wanted to have a sexy title, but then he wanted to follow it up with this spectacular thing that people would go home and talk about. Yeah, he would give you good value for your money. It cost 25 cents to get into his museum, 12 and a half cents for kids. And he spent decades just scouring the world to put literally hundreds of thousands of things into his museum so that people, you know, it's kind of like going to the Smithsonian. You can't just go once and feel that you've sort of seen it all. You know, it's there's just so, there was so much. And then, you know, and then there were entertainments. And so that was really the heart of his relationship to his customers or his audience was, you know, maybe uh, bend the truth a bit to, you know, get them in the door. But once they're in the door, make sure they have a good experience. Let's talk about his early life and how he became P.T. Barnum a little bit, Bob. When he was a kid, was it the production that he liked? Was it money that he liked? What was it that really attracted him at an early age to becoming a showman? You know, he um, he lived in a small town in Connecticut. He was not a poor boy, but he was not rich. Everybody in the town had to really hustle to make a living. So he lived among a lot of hustlers, including his uh, maternal grandfather, for whom he was named. And his grandfather would often give him a penny for something or and or hire him to do this or do that. And Barnum later in life realized that he had a, a sort of unusual affinity for collecting money, keeping money. So that was part of it. The other part is that his grandfather, when he was born, bought a piece of land in Barnum's name. And he told him it was the most beautiful, productive farm in Connecticut. And that that Barnum was himself a very rich guy, you know, that, that this farm was so wealthy and it would become his at a certain age. And Barnum says he, you know, he heard so much about it from his grandfather, from his parents, from people in town, that he imagined it to be, you know, a sort of land of milk and honey where there were diamonds in the streams and all this stuff. So this went on, you know, from the time he was, you know, could communicate to till he was about 12 years old. And somebody took him out to see his piece of property. And the night before, his mother said things to him like they called him Tail. Tail, I hope you're still going to you know, talk to us after you've seen this land. You know, I hope you don't feel like you're too good to, to be part of this family. So he goes out and it turns out it's a he's got to swim through a swamp to get there. He's chased by a snake. He's bitten by hornets. 
And he sees this island called Ivy Island, which still exists and is still nothing, as what it was, just this completely worthless piece of land. And he realizes then that he's been the victim of this incredible hoax <laughs> that's gone on for years and, with, and in which everyone he knows has participated. So, I mean, you don't have to be a great psychologist to see that this could lead to a, a sort of unusual need to, you know, acquire money to, uh, you know, to become what he became, which is really one of the richest men of his time. Well, part of his hustling led him to lotteries. And mm -hmm. one story that I'd read before your book, and then I read again, I hadn't gotten the background of this until I read your book, but I had read about him getting these worthless jars, these green jars, and turning that into a bunch of money where nobody else could. Could you tell us about him and lotteries? Yeah, I mean, lotteries were a... Um of, were not state run and they were for a long time legal and a lot and anybody could just set one up and his his uh, grandfather this great influence in his life had successfully done a lot of lotteries including ones that were kind of uh, kind of scams but in ways that increased his grandfather's reputation as kind of a, a scamp you know so Barnum went, uh, went to work at a uh, at a dry goods store and he noticed that there were not only, well, I think a man came by to sell these bottles and Barnum managed to buy them very cheap. But he also found in the back of the store somewhere, there was this, all this kind of useless, these useless tin objects that were, you know, just trash essentially. So he, one of his lotteries advertised that every single person who participated would get a prize, which as you know, is not the way lotteries usually work. So uh, he did a great business in getting everybody to, you know, chip in and they would come in and he would give each person a prize, which was a piece of junk, basically. <laughs> so that was how that lottery worked. Uh, that was not one of his more honorable scams, but he also got rid of all that junk in the back of the store. So how did he go from that to becoming a newspaper publisher? When did he get into newspaper publishing? He, he started a newspaper it's hard to believe this, but at the age of 21, wow. it turned out it was very easy in those days to, you know, buy the types and, and uh, the things you needed to produce a, a paper. Connecticut was a uh, state that had a state-sponsored religion at the time. And Barnum began to feel that the religion was, was, was going to take over government, that this divide between government and religion was falling apart. And so he started a newspaper to to be an activist on behalf of keeping religion out of out of government. So he did it for um, two or three years. And the thing that I take from that experience that that I sort of loved about Barnum's life story, he several times managed to libel people, and not in a uh, you know not in a, a sort of mild mannered way. And one of the people he libeled was actually his uncle and his guardian, because his father had died by then, and his, his uncle and they were on different sides of this divide. But anyway, one of the other people he libeled got him thrown in jail for a month. And they put him in the local jail in uh, his town, and somehow he managed while in jail to have the, the jail cell redecorated, like he had stuff put on the walls and 
and he and he was able to do his business. Unlike you know today, if you're in jail, you can't you know run a business. But he did his newspaper from jail, and he complained that he had so many visitors while he's in jail, he couldn't get his work done. It was a real trouble for him. But anyway, on the day that he was released, he managed to cook up what was essentially a celebration in which people who had agreed with him participated. And they ended up having a, you know, a rally. He actually had the rally in the courtroom where he was convicted. He walked, the people walked him across the square, had a rally and there were people he had to walk through. There were so many people. They had a big luncheon for him with toasts. They had cannon firing salutes. They had a band that followed him back to his little village and where there was another gun salute. And um, it was just, he just created this incredible event from his jail cell. And, and so one of the things he really did later in life that he was just great at for getting attention for things was he was a master at creating these sorts of events and getting everybody involved and, and, and just sort of doubling down on anything you could do to make the event sort of newsworthy or it was so. it was amazing as I was reading this, uh, the fact that he could turn getting sued into a celebration was exactly was it made him it made him even more famous and uh, yeah it, it was great and and you know he did it for several years and then he claimed that the circulation it was circulated in a number of states I'm not sure if that's true but um, but eventually he he wasn't making money so he got into something else. You can see from all of this, Bob, all the things you've said so far, the sense of humor, the whole town pulling the the joke on him, it kind of in it, where his sense of humor came from and kind of pulling the wool over people's eyes a little bit. Number two, the lotteries and having to hustle for the lotteries and then his ability to write headlines to sell. Like you can kind of see this all coming together to become this great showman later on. That's true. There's a wonderful... Um passage from his autobiography where he talks about when he got his first job sort of sweeping up in a store. And and I think it was, I can't remember his grandfather's store, his uncle's store, but they wanted him to sweep up, you know, open the shutters in the morning. But he really liked to be behind the counter and sort of be the guy, you know, and he would do the bartering with people. And 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 it's a very funny passage in his autobiography because it shows his his sort of distance from himself, but also, you know, he, he makes fun of himself. But he, at the same time, shows he already had this sort of presence, uh, kind of theatricality, and a love of business, you know, just a love of, like, buying and selling, of bartering. Uh, and, and he talked about, he worked in country stores throughout his sort of teens, and, you know, how the women would come in and try to sell rags, and they'd have rocks in the bottom of the the basket, you know, so they'd get more weight. And so there was this kind of constant scamming going on back and forth between his customers and him. But he was good at it. Why did he move to New York? You could say that had he not moved to New York, none of all the later stuff, the museum, the circus, none of that would have happened. Well, he moved to New York several times and he did things like he worked in a porterhouse and he owned a boarding house and he was a buyer for a grocery store. But he kept going back and forth between his hometown and New York. But eventually after he got married to Charity, the the, the woman in the movie, uh, and they had a child, he decided that 
like so many people in that era of the 19th century, they were just drawn to the big city and that that was the place to go and make his fortune. And he had a lot of trouble uh, getting established. But one of the things he felt that he would be good at was um, sort of in a related in a way related to this celebration of his getting out of jail was to sort of be the impresario behind some sort of an act that he would uh, create interest in a performer, somebody like that. And so he had his ears open for something to get him into what was, you know, he saw as show business, business of taking shows out on the road or exhibiting people around New York. That was kind of in the back of his mind. And eventually the opportunity came his way to get him started. Yeah, I was thinking as I was reading through his early years that he should have been making money hand over fist. And yet early on, he he didn't. Yeah, it seemed like he made a lot of money in the lotteries. And then the state came along, state of Connecticut came along and banned private lotteries. So he had to get out of that business. But he he had, you know, he was one of these guys that I think maybe a lot of business people are like this. There's certain aspects of the business they really like. But for instance, the aspect of like getting people to pay you, you know, pay their obligations, he was less good at. So after he went to New York, he was quite poor at one point. But he had a guy in, in up in Connecticut who was trying to collect bills for him. And that guy eventually got enough money out of his former customers that he was able to start a boarding house. That, that was one of his businesses. And, but um, I don't know that he was sort of a profligate spender, you know, that he just sort of uh, blew all his money. But, um, you know, I think it just came easily. So he didn't think much about saving it. Just he lived to the level of his income, I guess. But it certainly felt like he was always investing in his business, though, Bob. One of the things that happened with him was once he got into the show thing, he spent years on the road with these acts in small towns. At one point, he came back, and this was in the late 1830s, and there was something called the Panic of 1837 and that really hit New York hard, but hit the whole country hard. It was a major depression. And he was back in 1838, and he had somehow saved $2,500 from this, um, sh you know, show businesses. And he advertised in the newspaper. He was a great believer in advertising. And he advertised, I want to start a business. I have $2,500. If you have a business you'd like to get in with me, let me know. And he had the most amazing number of crazy ideas come his way. And and uh, he's very funny about, you know, the sort of scammers who came to scam him. One of the business he got involved in, he finally decided to go into business with a German fellow and that they would start making an odd assortment of things like they had a little what was called a factory, but a little, a little place where they made boot polish, cologne water, and what was called bear grease. Now, bear grease was supposed to be good for guys like us who wanted to grow some more hair. <laughs> and uh, if you don't mind my saying so. <laughs> and, right. uh, and uh, it happened that bear grease did not have any bear grease in it. It was actually made from hog grease and other things. But the business went along for a while. And his guy, the, the German guy, decided to sell out. But it was all done on credit. 
And anyway, the guy went back to Germany and left Barnum basically holding all the bills, and that was all it was. So later in his autobiography, he said, well, nothing really came of that, but I have all these recipes, and I'm going to share them with you here. So he had the recipe for the cologne water. And so for the Bear Grease, he said, it would be good if you go into this business to chain a bear outside of your store and say, he will be next. <laughs> Even though there was no bear grease in bear grease. But, and, you know, it's funny. And it's, it's funny. It's a little makes us a little bit uncomfortable, too, because <laughs> our attitude about animals is a lot different than attitude in the 19th century. But it did show his how he married wit and entrepreneurialism, I guess. There are so many life lessons and so many business lessons in this book. And it's funny. We just talked just briefly about this. We didn't talk at all about the later years with the circus, about, of course, all the years with the museum, about some of the people he made famous. That's all in the book. It's called Barnum and American Life. Available everywhere, Bob? Everywhere. It better be. If it isn't, uh, <laughs> let me know. Yeah. <laughs> I'll and, be in touch with Simon and Schuster. <laughs> we'll also have a link on our show notes page at uh, stackingbenjamins.com to our independent bookstore link. So if you want to buy it through an independent bookseller. My uh, last question for you is this. I'm, I'm very curious how somebody gets involved in a topic and how an author decides, you know what, this is for me. What attracted you to this subject? I'll tell you, my last book was of a 19th century photographer named Matthew Brady, very famous for his Civil War things. But Brady had a portrait studio in lower Manhattan. And it turns out right across the street from him was this amazing structure, Barnum's American Museum, which had flags flying and lights and all this stuff. And Brady was a bit of a, he was, he didn't write anything down and he was a bit of a, a quiet sort of fellow. And so just as he would look across the street at this museum where all the action was, I was sort of figuratively looking across the street thinking, <laughs> gosh, it would be fun to be writing about what's going on over there rather than what's going on here. So that was that was I was sort of drawn in, uh, I guess, on some sort of geographical basis. That's great. You just walked across the street. I walked across the street. Exactly. And then six years later, I got there. <laughs> Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and welcome to the greatest podcast segment on earth, My Trivia. Normally, I'd whip out my crazy holiday calendar and challenge you with some intense, high-level knowledge bombs, but instead of dazzling you with, uh, you know, when was the first alien discovered or, uh, you know, something like, when did scientists find Atlantis? Because let's be real, I mean, who wants to hear that garbage? I'm going to bestow upon you my one-of-a-kind, never-before-been-asked B.T. Barnum trivia. Here's your question. Back in 1906, another traveling circus bought out the Barnum & Bailey Greatest Show on Earth and continued performing until 2017. What was the name of that circus? I'll be back with your answer right after I set up some swings so Cooper the Cat can trapeze across the basement. We hear a lot in the news about Greece being in debt. But actually, when you think about it, we're all in eternal debt to Greece for inventing Greek yogurt. When you try an Aristophanes yogurt, just like the Acropolis, you'll lose your marbles over that smooth Greek taste every time. 
Aristophanes Yogurts. Keep it Greek. Welcome back, circus lovers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and man, this cat is horrible at trapeze. He just sits there. But, uh, you know, something that won't sit is my trivia answer. So let's go. Here was the question. In 1906, following the passing of the Bailey half of Barnum and Bailey, another circus bought out the Barnum and Bailey Circus. What was the name of that company? If you said the Ringling Brothers Circus, you'd be a winner. The Ringling Brothers ran the circuses separately until 1919 and proceeded to run one of the country's most famous acts until their close in 2017. As for me, maybe this cat would prefer a high wire. You think maybe that would... Come on, cat, let's get on it. Somehow we'll uh, we'll have to find his genius because I'm getting tired of supporting this whole act. Hear me, cat, I'm tired of you. Time to get to work, buddy. Richie got that one, but uh, that one eluded you. I knew it. I was going to say Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> Swing and a miss. I did see the Ringling Brothers for a while when they tried to compete with Cirque du Soleil. They created a Cirque du Soleil type experience. And uh, and I went to one of them and it was really, really good. But I think at that point, the circus was already on the decline. And uh, that name didn't have the cachet uh, that Cirque du Soleil had. So rest in peace, Ringling Brothers. How about that, OG? P.T. Barnum never said, never said, there's a sucker born every minute. Good. Yeah, and I I'm love glad you didn't say that. No, well, and and I love what Bob said about that, that it totally was contrary to the man that he was. He wouldn't have said mm-hmm. that because he didn't like the slimy stuff. Like whenever whenever he had those big outlandish things, it was always kind of with a wink and a nod, you know? Like we're both in on this, which is uh fantastic. And by the way, proving again too, life is about marketing, but clickbait, you know, don't make your life about clickbait. You gotta follow through. Like he always had He always had the big clicky title, but he wanted you to leave there talking about how awesome it was. Right. Two-step process. Love all that. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline, and we'll tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. The thing I value the most is watching Zac Efron swing around on that rope. He's so strong. His upper body strength is amazing. Believe it or not, that wasn't in the top two here. It's your loved ones in your time. I don't have Zach Efron here. That's strange. But that's why, OG, they made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now for your free quote. And of course, uh, policies issued by Mass Mutual, more than 160 year old insurer. You think that the circus is old. Here's something else old. We'll throw out the Haven Lifeline here too. I think this is Greg. Morning, it's Greg Moore from Fort Lauderdale. I was listening to the podcast about um, tokens. And did you talk about the security that tokens has in place? What happens if they get breached? Yeah, great, great question. OG, you weren't in on the this uh, fintech interview with uh, token. And uh, we did this just a few weeks ago. If you go back through the Friday fintech segments, token to get up to speed, is a fintech company that takes your credit card, you use your credit card, you input that into token, and it creates different 
credit cards that you use, different numbers you use with different retailers. So as an example, oh, gee, if you're shopping at Amazon, Token will give you one number. And then if you're, you know, if you're a frequent flyer at Delta, let's say, you'll use a different number with that. So every single place has a different number. So if Amazon gets breached, then you only have to worry about the uh, your Amazon transactions, not all hmm. your different places. That's what they do. But yeah. the, but the question is a great one from Greg. What if what if token gets breached? Of course, token <laughs> is in the security business. We did not spend a lot of time on that because of the fact that Zohar and company. That's what they do. But the same question is is actually about anything. I want to broaden this question. There's never an infallible solution to anything. Like when my clients would do estate plans back in the day, they'd say, well, is this going to make sure that my one kid that I'm giving nothing to won't sue? Nope. Your kid can still sue you. Your cousin can sue you. Somebody you don't know can sue you. And by the way, it doesn't have anything to do with estate planning. OG could sue me right now for no reason. Somebody listening to oh, this. Oh, I'd sh- have a reason. <laughs> somebody to the list. I've got a long list. Somebody listening to the, the, there is no silver bullet for this. All that token or any company like that does is adds another layer of security, just like an estate plan adds a layer of security to your estate, just like insurance adds a layer of security to your uh, risk management plan. It's It's just another layer. That's right. Yeah, and I mean, I just read an article the other day that said every social security number in America has been stolen. It just goes to prove the point that nothing is 100% safe online. You know, well, if I've got seven safes in my house, how do I make sure that nobody steals my gold bar? Well, could they not just steal all the safes and crack them all eventually? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you're trying to put some barriers in the way and hoping that if there's a bad actor out there that that person's going to go after the low hanging fruit and you know, you're not it. Right. I mean, you lock your front door hoping that if there's somebody who's just on the prowl, they're just going to wiggle the door and find out it's locked and move on to the next person. You know, don't make yourself an easy er target. So I'm not sure that there's a, there's, there's, this also is true for uh, investment planning. You know, I was thinking about this from this perspective. We believe strongly in, you know, diversification. We believe strongly in asset allocation, but that doesn't mean all that's going to work in the future. Well, and it also doesn't mean it worked in every time frame. I mean, half of the scare of the 2007, 2008 was that these non-correlating assets all went down. <laughs> they all right. they all went down. Sure. And so this was this event that was so different than past events. And can it happen again? Absolutely, it can happen again. Sure. But yeah, it didn't so if somebody says, you know, according to the research, uh, uh, you know, value beats growth. Well, it hasn't for the last 10 years. So does that mean that we'll, like, it will never do it again? I yeah. don't think so. But I can't prove it to you. I can't prove that that was 100 years ago data that will never be in existence again. Um, I can just say that there's been 100 years of data that says it does. Again, you're just trying to put as many layers of things between you and the bad stuff as possible, I think. That is a great question, though, Greg. And by the way, I have these people for a limited amount of time, a lot of features, hard to understand actually how that works. And I wanted to get that from him. Definitely a question, though, that you want to ask Zohar. If, 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 if you take a look, by the way, at Token and the amount of interviews he's done in the popular press talking about security, I think what you're going to find is that they've got some uh, pretty robust security, but you should reach out to them directly with that question, too. 
We also get letters down here in the basement. Uh, well, we used to get letters. And we now have, they auto-respond to bounce. We have duct taped the mailbox. Yes, it is closed. Mom has duct taped it. But Doug dug this one out. See what I did there? Of the bottom of the mailbag. Michael writes, I have stock in one company that's in my name that my godmother purchased when I was a teenager. Now I'm in my mid-20s and I want to sell the stock to transfer it into a Roth IRA. What steps do I have to take? to sell the shares and close out my position with that company. Do I need a brokerage account with a company like Fidelity so they can properly sell the shares? Or can I go onto the company investor page, log myself in and sell the shares directly with the company? Great question, Michael. I'm sure there's quite a few people in the audience that have had this happen. I used to get this from time to time. OG, how do you do it? Depends on how you hold them. If you have shares, like an actual certificate, and they're hanging on the wall, like I have some here in the basement, then you'd have to contact the company and ask them how they want you to dispose of those. Sometimes they want you to sign them and send them in. Sometimes they uh, will void them, you know, electronically and, and deliver the shares. It's called delivering it in street name and have it be uh, at a brokerage company. If you have the shares directly registered through a registration program like Computer Share, or maybe some people have direct registration at the company, right? You own AT&T stock through AT&T then yeah, you'll have an investor page and that will have a, you know, an accumulation of here's the number of shares that you have uh, right now. And then you'd simply just log in, perform the transaction, probably call the investor center if you need to. And then they'll send you a check, whatever the difference is based on the sales price. And they might have a little bit of a sales charge commission type of thing, processing charge, they might call it to do that, but it might, might not, it's a few dollars. The only thing I'd keep in mind here, you're going to have to pay some taxes. Probably. If the stock went up from the time that you got it, you'll pay a capital gains tax. Maybe. Yeah, depending on your tax bracket and all that other sort of fun stuff. So probably a good idea just to have that in the back of your head. If it was like, you know, they bought me two shares of Disney, it's worth 200 bucks. I don't know that I'd even worry too much about that. But if it's, you know, five, eight, ten thousand dollars $10,000 and you might have a tax bill of 1000 or 2000 bucks at the end of the year, you, you know, kind of want to Put that one on the back pocket just so you're not surprised come April. And if it's a bigger number and you want to not sell it right now, but sell it later on, you can transfer those shares to a brokerage account, like you said, and then maybe put mm-hmm. a stop loss on it. Let's say a stop loss is an automatic uh, sell order. If it goes below a certain point, you know, you can be out doing whatever you do during your day, making podcasts in your basement, let's say, and you don't have to sit and watch it all day. If it goes down a little bit, it will automatically sell. But if it keeps going up, you could keep notching that stop loss up. Sure. And if it's a substantial position, of course, you know, you can transfer it and sell it over a period of time, you know, two tax years or something, sell some now, sell some next year, just kind of spread that tax bill out depending on how much it is. But yep, very easy, very simple to do. Yeah. And generally for a few shares, I do it OG exactly the way that you said, go to the transfer agent, sign the shares, Sell them that way. Uh, very low cost. Easy peasy. Lemon squeezy. Thanks for the letter, Michael. You got a note for us? It's the Haven Tough Lifeline. Tough <laughs> Cry to the Haven Lifeline. Like mom says, cry to the hand. Cry to the Haven oh. Lifeline. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. And you too can walk away with the greatest money show on earth t-shirt, which is apropos on the day that Robert Wilson was in the basement. That's such a cool shirt. Mm-hmm. Love that shirt. I'm not wearing that one today, though. Check it out. I'm wearing uh, I see that. I'm wearing Ben Franklin's head shirt. If you want to go look at the swag, 
that Brad Lark makes for us, head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash shirts and you'll see all of his creativity. I'm not sure if this one, maybe the boxers is my favorite one, the boxing match. Hmm, okay. That's a pretty good one. They're very comfortable. Uh, they are incredible. That is that is the important thing to know. Here. That is the hallmark. That's going to do it for today. Two quick things. Thanks to everybody who's left us a review of this show. In fact, Mom says she's got this one on the refrigerator. Oh, gee, check this out. This one is five stars from Mateo Opium Den. No judgment. Not sure about that one. But uh, Mateo Opium Den <laughs> says this. The most well-produced show on all things money. Too bad I haven't learned anything yet. Hopefully, they're doing well enough to keep up with the rent for his mom's basement. Good thing about mom and her basement. It's paid off and uh, no worries there. Mom's rent. have to do the dishes from time to time. Well, let's Take the trash out. Let's be real. We make Doug do those things. True. Yeah. I use the royal we. (laughs) Last, Last is this OG and his financial planning firm are taking clients. So if you are looking for a good firm in your corner... Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash OG. That will lead you to their calendars and uh, how you can interface with them for better financial planning. All right. That's going to do it. Doug, you've got it from here. What should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take some advice from Robert Wilson and P.T. Barnum. Not making money? Time to get inventive. Barnum made money by hustling. If you don't have enough, maybe it's time to go create more. Second, spend too much this summer on family activities. Write down the lessons you learned so you don't repeat them next year. How can you stay on budget and have a great summer? Well, by planning ahead. But the big lesson? Don't partner with Joe's cat to make your millions entertaining the world's masses. That cat's just downright lazy. Hold on. All right, cat, I'll feed you. I just got to do the credits. Hold on, I said. Big thanks to Robert Wilson for stopping by the basement. You can find Robert's book, Barnum, An American Life, wherever books are sold or through our show notes at stackingbenjamins.com. Thanks also to Desiree Vargas Wrigley from Parachute for joining us. That's Parachute spelled P-E-A-R, like the fruit, and then, you know, like shoot, like, uh, you know, like a Gesundheit or something like that. So it's very clever. P-E-A-R-C-H-U-T-E dot com. You'll figure it out. You're pretty smart people. (laughs) Oh, I kidding. No, you're not. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I just noticed it's just as dark and damp down here as Joe's soul. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Quiet down now and get some sleep. Good night, everybody. Good night, Mama. Good night, Ben. Good night, everyone. Good night, Mama. Good night, Daddy. Good night, children. Good night, Daddy. Good night, Elizabeth. Good night, John Boy. Good night, Jim Bob. Good night, Jim Bob.
Good night, Jim Bob. What's going on? I was asleep. What's everybody doing? Good night, Good night Jim Just before this, I went and saw a movie, and it's by. Is that why you were late? It's no, I was late because actually, just before this, I was taking a nap. But just just before this, <laughs> of course you were. I was. I was. If I if I took a nap during the day, I would seriously go to sleep for twelve hours. I don't think it's possible for me to nap for two hours during the day. I had to take the nap. Why don't you go to bed at like a normal time? Just power through it and then go to bed at a normal time. And then like it resets the whole clock from that point forward. You I'm just, st- I'm, I'm still like going to jet lagged. I'm still going to go to bed at a normal time tonight. I'm it didn't, but your normal times are jacked up. I'm saying like go to bed like nine. No, I'm okay. Grandpa, maybe nine 30. I mean, if you're feeling frisky, I got to stay up for the Waltons. You don't even know what that reference means. I do know what There's it is. There's the age Good night, John Boy. Yes. But I saw this movie. So no 9.30 bedtimes? No, I no, I totally will go to bed tonight at, at 9.30. But we were out at a restaurant called Mabel Gray last night with my daughter. It is in uh, Hazel Park outside of Detroit. A lot of people say it's the best restaurant the in the best. Detroit okay. area. We were celebrating, celebrating for her, kind of sad for Cheryl and I. My daughter has quit her job in, in uh, Kansas City, was home the last couple weeks. She's moving into the basement. <laughs> she is moving to Japan. So she's going to be teaching English as a second Aloha. language. If, in fact, she is, yes. You know all the dialects. Said perfectly with the exact right dialect. She is in the air as we speak. She's been gone since noon. So she's been in the air for five hours, which means she's just reached the she's, Pacific Ocean. She, I was going to say, she's, she's flying over San Francisco. She only has eight hours to go, and, yeah. and she gets there. But I'm sure you guys sprung for the, for the big boy seats to make her comfortable. If by sprung for the big boy seats, you mean we took her to dinner at Mabel Gray last night. Yes, we did. And it was, it was really fun and uh, kind of sad. But today, just back to... Cheryl and I, mom was busy with the bridge club. So we went and saw this movie and then I took a nap. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That's your son? No, that's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> All the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, with the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? Have you not seen Seems this world 
course, you hear that music. You know it's a Quentin Tarantino movie. He's back with his ninth film. Oh, yeah. Film. Okay, there you go. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the story of a fictional actor named Rick Dalton. It's 1969, the hippie Hollywood time, big time of change in Hollywood as in the nation. And uh, he lives right next door to Roman Polanski, whose spouse is Sharon Tate. And for people who don't know the story of, of Sharon Tate, she was murdered by followers of Charles Manson. And so they intertwined this fictional story about Brad Pitt as the stunt double for Leonardo DiCaprio playing this actor who does a lot of Westerns and is kind of struggling to keep his career alive. You also have Bruce Lee uh, is, is in this film. By the way, you have a lot of, a lot of cameos and small parts from real people. Kurt Russell is in the movie. Luke Perry, before he passed away. Uh, Luke Perry's in this movie. That was pretty cool to see. Did I just hear Al Pacino? Al Pacino in the film. Dakota Fanning. There's just I'm a guessing Quentin Tarantino's in it. You know, he he does kind he's, of the I say he's kind of he, gotta be there, right? Well, he does kind of the Stan Lee thing sometimes where he's in his own movies. I think yeah. I, I think I know where he was, but I was so engrossed in the movie that I that I missed it. I don't know what to think about this film and I would love it if people, anybody who saw it, I mean, feel free to email me or, or hit me up on Twitter and let me know what you thought about once upon a time in Hollywood. Cause the story, there's very little of it. I mean, there is a story and it's kind of there, but it's really more these character studies intertwined in a, in a way that I'm not sure I know why. Like, and I won't spoil this, but I don't know why some of these stories are even in the film. And yet there's enough evidence of symbolism all over the place that I think Tarantino's driving at something. And obviously he's hell of a director. So, you know, he's got to be driving at something. I'm just not sure what it was half the time. And by the way, that doesn't mean I didn't like it. Well acted movie obviously a well shot movie it's a tarantino movie you get a little less blood in this movie than you get like in django well but when it gets that movie has some crazy amounts of it yeah when it gets bloody though when it gets bloody it gets really 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 bloody hmm. um there's a short scene at the end of the movie where it's uh hella bloody so did i like it i think so <laughs> the only thing i've heard about this is that Maybe this is the movie that Brad Pitt gets an Oscar. Brad Pitt's really good in this movie. Brad, That's what everybody says. Yeah, Brad. Pitt. Like this is he's a really good Brad Pitt. Super. The problem I have is that he's still Brad Pitt. He's still the same Brad Pitt. I don't know that I give him the Oscar because he sounds like Brad Pitt. He looks like Brad Pitt. Like me. I don't really see the character. I still Slash see Brad George Pitt. Clooney. I mean, it'd be it, it would be like giving the Oscar to Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis is Bruce Willis in every movie. He's playing Bruce Willis. It'd be like giving it to Mark Wahlberg. Mark Wahlberg is Mark Wahlberg in every movie. Now, I like Bruce Willis. And I'm I like, a gambler. He wasn't Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> and I like, it's like one of my favorite scenes of all movies of all time. But you know what I'm saying? There are these yeah. guys that usually have this one you character. Need somebody, you need somebody play. who can kind of go out of their skin a little bit and yeah. do something that's totally unexpected. And you go... Bingo. 
that's the person that I want to win. And of course, by the way, Pacino did that. But then again, Pacino's not in this movie for very long. Uh, yeah. He's he's got kind of a bit part in this in this film, an important part, but a bit part. So I'm so on the fence about this. I could two months from now be telling you this was one of my favorite movies of the year. Maybe. Yeah, kind of got to see it again just to. I would love to see this movie, but it was it was so cinematic, but it but it did it did drag a little. So I don't know. I really don't know. So thumb up from me. By the way, my lovely spouse Cheryl went to see it with me, and uh, she gave it kind of a thumb down. So mm. mixed reviews from the Salsi High family. This though is it is Tarantino in your wheelhouse? Uh, I have seen probably all of them. Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if all of them is the There's right eight. word, but this is yeah, number nine. I, I, f- I feel like I've seen probably all of them, but not you know, when they came out. Yeah. Like Django, for example, that movie had zero interest to, with me for a lot of reasons. And then I watched it and I was like, okay, I can see why this was such a good film. I still didn't like it. Uh, I mean, I like, I liked it, but I didn't like it. I loved like, it. You know, so I wasn't upset that I saw it, but, yeah, um, right. I usually, it's just, it's nothing that I'll likely go see. Yeah. But you'll probably it'll, watch it on a plane later. It'll come out. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so who knows? Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.